Life down here is a lot. From every angle, corner, and edge. Sometimes it's just too much, too complex. It can be easy to miss how he's at work all around us, moving throughout the patterns and forms of this world. But when we seek and find with all our heart, we discover that it all comes down to the same fundamental designs. And then we can rest in the revelation of empty space. Clarity comes when we humbly clear away the mess and devote ourselves to a deeper connection. Setting our minds to gain understanding. To see the beauty in simplicity. As he helps us see that less is more. Hey, Cornwall Church, thank you so much for being with us today. No matter where you're joining us from, the vast majority of you online, and thanks for tuning in today. Some of you at our Skagit campus, glad that you're there with Pastor Brian. Some of you at our Bellingham campus, and a group of you at our marriage retreat in Cedar Springs. Thanks for joining us uh, today as well. We are in this series and season that we're referring to as Less is More. And that phrase, though you've heard it before, that phrase is a, is a bit of a paradox because the idea in most of our thinking is that if a little bit is good, that there's a direct correlation that more would be better and a whole lot more would be even more better. But sometimes less is more. Now, some of you are old enough, not me, of course, some of you are old enough to remember Mae West, who is uh, famously quoted as saying, too much of a good thing is wonderful. But that's not always the case. Uh, let me give you some examples, and really most of these don't apply to me, so if it feels like I'm picking on you, it's because I am. M many of you wear necklaces, not just women, men as well, and no, no shame in that game. I'm not judging at all, but men, if you wear a necklace, that's fine, but more is not better. Take it from Mr. T. Now, Mr. T could pull this off, but for you, let me just tell you, less is more. Some of you ladies wear makeup, and that's good. It enhances your eyes and, and your lips and such. But you look at this, and then you'd have to say, well, okay, but maybe less is more. That it would be better to have a little bit less. And maybe you adorn your face with, um, I don't know, ornamental things like earrings or, or maybe even, you know, tattooed eyebrows or something. So tattoos and, and, and piercings, fine. But maybe... Yeah, maybe more, uh, less is more in something like this. And of course, um, while many of you will disagree with me on this, when it comes to household pets, uh, the crazy cat lady, less is definitely more. So, so when we talk about less is more, we're talking about it in the context of fasting, the ancient spiritual discipline of fasting, of saying less of one thing means that we can have more of another thing, more of a better thing, more of a greater thing. And, and that's what we're talking about in this series. One of the tensions I wrestle with uh, on a series like this and on a topic like this is that I feel like part of my uh, responsibility and duty as, as your pastor and as a preacher is to call us, to challenge us, to stretch us at an appropriate level of, of even discomfort, but to not do it in a heavy-handed, guilt-ridden way. I, I want to inspire us to do something, but not manipulate us into doing something. 
It is my, my role at, in this setting as, as one who would lead us, but my role is not to be the Holy Spirit. And so I trust that the Holy Spirit will work that, but at the same time, I do want to push us. I, 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 want us, I want us to stretch a bit on this. And the fasting thing for some of you is a huge stretch. And maybe some of you are trying this for the first time, and maybe it's been difficult. I mean, you fasted a meal or a couple meals or a day, and by the end of it, I mean, you were so crazy missing food that you're thinking about veggie tails and all the culinary delights you could have if you could just butcher Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber. Or, or maybe some of you as we're in this 21 days of fast, maybe you started this week and, and you had great intentions and you had some plans for what you're gonna do and it didn't really go as planned and, and maybe you caved or it, it, you, you kind of fell through with what you were trying to follow through with. And, and I would just say, hey, no guilt. Give yourself some grace and maybe make some adjustments and, uh, and, and get back on. Or maybe some of you are saying, well, I, I missed last week, so I'll, I'll catch it next year. Hey, we're still doing this for two more weeks, so I want to encourage you to be a part of it and, and to join in with us on this as we continue with Less is More. About 20 years ago, it'll be 20 years this fall, 20 years ago, Jim Collins wrote a business book that the success in the sales um, was just like eclipsed most business books. Most business books that are, are published sell on an average of about 3,000 copies. Collins's book, called Good to Great, sold 4 million copies. And the opening line of his book, the very first line of the book, which is kind of the premise for the whole book, is this. Good is the enemy of great. And then he goes on to talk about how many companies settle for good, but it, that's the enemy of, of being really great. When I thought about that phrase, I was thinking that's kind of the essence of what we're shooting for with this discipline of, of fasting, is that we are saying no to some things that are good in order to say yes to some things that are great. Less of the good so that we can have more of that which is greater and to have that in our lives. Now, when you talk about fasting, while last week I said it, it encompasses more than just food, the primary thought that comes to mind is fasting from food. And food is good. God created food. God created us to need food. In fact, if you think about it, in the garden, Adam and Eve, everything's perfect. There's no sin. We're not a fallen, broken world yet. And God says, you can eat of all these trees except this one. He says, this food is good. And when you think about that, it's saying no to something good like food in order to say something great to, uh, yes to something greater. In James, it says this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every good gift is from God. And even food is a good gift from God. For some of you that pray before your meals, that's the purpose of the prayer. It's not, you know, let's not get poisoning here or choke or, you know, or just some kind of ritual, God's neat, let's eat kind of prayer. The whole idea of, of giving thanks before a meal is to say, God, you've provided us with this good gift. I mean, it, it looks good, it smells good, it tastes good, the texture, uh, the satisfaction of eating it, the strength it brings to our body, the fellowship that we have while we're eating this together. I mean, it's, there's so much good. And, and I was thinking about trying to 
with words paint a picture of this absolute good food, but I thought that could cause some of you to stumble if you're fasting from food today. So I, I don't want to do that. But it's to have this good thing that we're saying for, for a season, for a time, whether it's a meal or a day or a week or whatever, I'm going to say no to that good thing because what I really want is to be desiring the giver more than the gift. The food is good. It's a good gift. It's from God. But I want to say no to the good gift so that I can have a greater sense of the giver of that gift and to take that time, that, that space, and to, and to focus on the giver of all good gifts. The result of that is not to say, oh, this is horrible, I'm so hungry, this is painful, this is such a difficult thing. The hope is that we would find a deeper satisfaction. Like the psalmist writes of, when he writes these words, my soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Some of you are saying, oh, but there, it says my soul is satisfied with rich food. No, no, it says as with, kind of like you experience when you have a wonderful meal where you're full and you're satisfied and it has been fantastic. He says, I want that on a deep soul level. And so maybe I'll say no to food so that I can experience that with the greater, the giver of all things that are good. Last week, as we started this series, I kind of gave you a, not an exhaustive, but a, a who's who's list of people throughout the pages of scripture who engaged in this spiritual discipline of fasting. I mean, from Moses and, and Joshua and Daniel and David and, and Ezekiel and Esther and Anna and Hannah and on and on and on. And we focused specifically on Jesus last week. Today, I want us to look at another individual who came off of that who's who's list of people who fasted in the Bible. And today, I want to look at the life of John the Baptist the role that fasting played in his life. And I just want to say this, um, in a few minutes as we get into this, you may find yourself saying, well, this might be interesting, but what does it have to do with fasting? I want to talk about the life of John the Baptist, and it's, we're going to go a, a little bit through that. And then I, it will lead us right into the role that fasting played in his life. And then after all of that, it will come down to one phrase that he says. And this is the piece that I want you to take away. I'm not going to tell you yet. That's why I want you to stick with me. All of that is going to build up to one phrase that, that John the Baptist states. It's like the phrase that pays. It's the one that I want us to hold on to. It is essential for us as we understand what God really had in mind for us with his spiritual discipline of fasting. All right, so let's, let's, uh, let's look at John the Baptist. You may remember... A couple of weeks ago, after our, our Sermon on the Mount series, The Kingdom Culture, one week before Christmas, I did a sermon called Pre-Funk Benedictus Rabbit Chase, or something of that nature, where I was just allowing myself to go down all of these rabbit trails. Part of what happened in that sermon is that I talked about John the Baptist's parents. Quick little review. John the Baptist, his, his father's name was Zechariah. His mother's name was Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were from the lineage of Aaron. Zechariah was a priest. Elizabeth's father had been a priest. They're very righteous. They're very devout Jews. They're very old, um, and they don't have any children. And in this story, as we talked about, there's a, a divine conception, and they give birth to this son, John. 
We know him as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And that happens. While Elizabeth is pregnant with him, she's visited by her relative. When she's six months pregnant, she's visited by her very young relative, Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. And they are both pregnant at the same time, just six months apart. So John the Baptist is born. Six months later, Jesus is born. And that's really all that we hear uh, for, for a, a lot of years. Now, what I'm about to tell you is a bit speculative. There's no biblical uh, background for it, but I think you can build a pretty decent case for these things. And if not, it, it really isn't that big of a deal. John the Baptist and Jesus were relatives, probably cousins. Whether it was first cousins or second cousins, they're probably cousins. There's a very good chance and a high likelihood that in their early childhood years, after Jesus came back from, from Egypt, in their early childhood years, that they probably spent time together. Maybe family reunions, maybe when the whole family met at the temple, um, that there's a chance that, that John and Jesus grew up together as kids. Here's another guess, it's highly likely. Since John's parents were very, very old, past the childbearing years when they had him, and because of the life expectancy in those days, John's parents probably died while he was very young. We don't know how young, maybe a child, maybe a teenager. But with that, there is a possibility, and some would say high probability, I, I won't go that far. There's a possibility that when John was a teenager or in his early 20s, that he went to join a group called the Essenes. The Essenes referred to themselves as the Sons of Light. They were a very devout group of men. They were, they were kind of like a monk in, monks in a monastery. They had a, a very aesthetic, ascetic life, and they were uh, very pure, and they were very structured and very strict, and they lived out by the Dead Sea. They're the ones, uh, you, you know, who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls or, or transcribed the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. So all that's a bit speculative of what happened from the time John was born until he's 30. Now, that speculation aside, now we get into back what the Bible says. So when John is 30, he starts his public ministry. And, and he comes kind of out of the desert. And this we know, John has some disciples. He has followers. Just like Jesus had disciples, John had some disciples. And John comes preaching this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, at, is near, it's at hand. And people come to him and he begins to baptize them. Thus the name, John the baptizer. And he's down in the southern part of, uh, of the Jordan Valley, down by the Dead Sea. He's baptizing people there. And people are coming, the Bible says, from Jerusalem, from all Judea, and from the whole region of the Jordan. This isn't like just going down the road. They're traveling, they hear this, and there's this revival that is sweeping over Israel. And as he's got this great following, these really a large congregation and his disciples, he's also a very fiery prophet. Because when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I mentioned this last week, when they come down to see what's going on, he calls them out. He says, you brood of vipers, just gets right in their face. And another thing, that a man named Herod Antipas, Herod, a ruler, John calls him out because Herod Antipas had married his brother's wife, Herodias, so he's married to his sister-in-law, and he has a weird thing for his niece. 
Anyway, John calls him out on that. That would eventually land John in prison and ultimately cost him his life. Well, while John is in prison, he sends some people to talk to Jesus, and Jesus starts talking about John, his cousin, John the Baptist. And he says, when you went down to the Jordan to see John the Baptist, what did you go to see? Did you go to see a reed swaying in the wind? And, and like, that's obvious that, that John was not swayed by popular opinion or, or the culture or even leaders. He wasn't like taking a poll to decide what he was going to believe, or what he was going to teach. He was rock solid. He wasn't swayed at all. He says, no, you didn't go to see a reed swaying in the wind. He said, did you go to see someone dressed in fine clothes? Absolutely not. John wasn't refined like you would think. And then he says this, Matthew chapter 11. Then what did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, and more. I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus said, This man, John, not only was he a prophet, he was more than a prophet. You may know that there had not been a prophet from God for 400 years. And now John comes, and he is a prophet, but he's more than just one of the Old Testament prophets. All of the Old Testament prophets were like foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. All the other prophets of the Old Testament, they were like predicting the coming of the Messiah. John prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah. All the Old Testament prophets, they announced this thing, and John ushers it in. He's more than just a prophet, he says. This is amazing. And then this phrase, which I find kind of funny, I tell you the truth. Some of you in your uh, translation of the scriptures, it might say, truly, truly, old, older, uh, maybe King James or RSV, maybe says, verily, verily. But, but I think it's funny when Jesus says, hey, hey, I tell you the truth. Listen, I expect nothing less than the truth from the one who says, I am the truth. But it's not that Jesus was saying, hey, up to this point, I've kind of been exaggerating a little bit, been fibbing a little bit, kind of been stretching it. So I'm going to get real honest with you here and real truthful, which is always funny to me when people say, hey, can I be honest with you? It's like, well, what, have you been lying to me this whole time? That's not what Jesus is saying. When he says, verily, verily, he's saying, listen, this is really important. What I'm getting ready to say, you need to pay attention to this. I want you to understand this. And maybe some of you ought to use that as an opening with your kids or your spouse or your boss, just going to, because they're not listening to you. Just say, hey, verily, verily. See if that kind of gets your attention. And Jesus makes this statement about John the Baptist. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Among those born of women, that would include everybody, all of us. Doesn't matter if you're male or female, doesn't matter your ethnicity, doesn't matter your nationality, your education, all of us. That includes all of us. He says, and none are greater than John the Baptist. You go back a few decades, you may remember Muhammad Ali, the boxer, saying, I am the greatest. Go a couple of decades this way from that, and you may remember Wayne Gretzky, the, the hockey player, 
was referred to as the great one. Come to our day, and now they talk about the goat. Tom Brady, the goat, greatest of all times. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, among all the people, there is none greater than John the Baptist. None greater. It's not just what Jesus says about him, but think about this. It's who says it. I mean, consider the source. Consider the source. Of, because here's what can happen. You could be at a store or at a bank and see a total stranger with arms full of boxes or papers or bags or what have you and hold the door open. And as that person goes through, they, they may say, oh, thank you so much. You're the greatest. Consider the source. They don't even know your name. They don't know anything about you and they're calling you the greatest. Some of you, and again, some of you are going to feel like I'm picking on you, and maybe I am. But you moms who post on Facebook on your son's birthday, and you just tell about how they're, they're sensitive and yet strong, how they're hilarious and yet serious, how they, they care for the underdog, and, and, and how you know, all, these, you know, all these accolades, and yes, and some of those might be true. Ask their friends. They may not say the same. But the reality is, you're their mom. Of course you're going to say that. Every mom wants to say that. They, they, they see the beauty in their son. Jesus is not one given to emotional exaggerations. Jesus is not one that's trying to, to butter John up, try to get in on his good side. Jesus is not one that's going to try to, to say something just to, to cheer somebody up. Jesus not only speaks the truth, he is the truth. So you consider the source, what he says is that there is no one greater than John the Baptist. This is the point where some of you are saying, yeah, but what does any of this have to do with fasting? Ah, so glad you asked. We refer to him because scripture points out that he is John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. But I think we could, for our sake today, and we will, we could refer to him as John the Faster. John the Faster. Because fasting was a part of his life, as a part of his routine, as part of his lifestyle. And as I was thinking about it and preparing this message, I, I, I just kind of asked myself this question. Was John great because he fasted, or did he fast because he was great? And maybe the answer is yes, or maybe it's not necessarily even a great correlation, but what I do know is that Jesus said he is the greatest of all times, none other, and I do know that he fasted. So let's see, how does fasting play out? What, what role does it play in John's life? And to understand this, we have to go back to before he was born. Again, Zechariah, his, his father, is in the temple, burning the incense. You know, once in a lifetime experience for this priest. The angel Gabriel shows up to him and tells him that he's gonna have a son. And, and it's in that time in uh, Luke chapter one where it says, and he will be a joy and delight to you. Of course he will. And many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Uh, of course, uh, you know, Elizabeth and Zechariah, he's gonna bring great joy and, and God's gonna use him. This last part of this, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. I never caught this until this week when I was studying this. What Gabriel says to Zechariah is a prophecy about Zechariah's son, John the Baptist, who is not yet even conceived. What Jesus says is a confirmation and an affirmation of what Gabriel prophesied. 
Because Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus did say there would be no one greater. Well, as Zechariah is hearing all this, the angel Gabriel gives him some specifics about the son. One of them was his name, John. There was no one in their family named John. Now, why would they choose the name John? He should have been Zach Jr. That's what would have been the tradition. But the angel said, you're going to call him John. And then he makes some other things very clear to Zechariah. Look at this, what he says in verse 15. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. All right, so he's going to be a teetotaler. But look at this. Filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Wow. God's going to do something incredible through him. In fact, he does in verse 16 where it says, many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And that's exactly what he was doing when he was telling them, repent, the kingdom of heaven, and they were being baptized. He was bringing them back. Let's circle back to this verse 15, though. It says, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you one rabbit trail that I'm not chasing right now that I really would love to? That there's a parallel because 60 years later, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's taken right out of here. Okay, well, we're, we're going to talk about that some other time. But this is what it says, that, that uh, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Not even on his 21st birthday. Just because something is legal doesn't mean that it has to be done. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. It says even when he's 21 or even, or if he goes to wherever, Canada or Idaho or wherever you can drink at 6, 19 or, okay, doesn't matter. It says he's never, never, not even when he's of legal age, never going to have alcohol. And some of you would say, well, of course, <laughs> he's a Baptist, <laughs> Isn't that the case? I mean, and you said he's from the southern region of, of the Jordan Valley, so he's a southern Baptist, of course. Okay, well, now, hold on a second. We can just say, well, yeah, he's a teetotaler, and, um, and so he's just not going to drink. And we can stop there. But if we go a little bit deeper, we find out that it's not just, okay, I'm going to fast from alcohol for my whole life. There's something deeper there. And to understand that, you have to go back 1,400 years to when Moses, you know, is writing the Pentateuch. And in Numbers chapter 6, we read these words. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite. So take a look at this. He's, he's saying man or woman, if they, if this is optional. This is voluntary, if they want to, not they have to, or they must, or it's commanded. If they want to, make a special vow, enter into a covenant, make a commitment, a commitment of separation, separation from something, but separation to someone, separation to the Lord as a Nazarite. And you say, well now, okay, what does that mean? Is that is that some kind of a, a moniker for the lost tribe of Israel? Who are the Nazarites? Whatever. Nazarite was not a tribe. It was not a, a section of people. It was anyone who would enter into this, willingly enter into this. Now, when Kip preaches, he Greeks out and geeks out, or however he says that. I, I don't have all the Greek like the geek Pastor Kip does. But it's from a Hebrew word, which is the word nazir, 
and it means to consecrate or to separate. That's the root, is nazir, like nazirite, nazirite. To consecrate, to separate, to separate from, to separate to. Consecrate, that's kind of a, a word we don't use a whole lot. Again, some of you, I, I know I'm going back in the old school. Some of you remember that song by Paul Simon called, um, I think, Love Me Like a Rock of Ages or something. He says, I am a consecrated boy. Or, or if you grew up in church, you know, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Consecrated means to, to set it apart from and for, from something for a specific purpose. It would be, it would be de- dedicated. And so, so um, what Moses writes is that if you want to enter into this kind of this, this fast, this covenant, the commitment of, of fast, this commitment of separation as a Nazarite, this is what you're going to do. And there's some very clear specifics of what it meant if you wanted to take a Nazarite vow. Oral tradition would say that the minimum you could do a Nazarite vow for was 30 days, but it could go 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a year or longer. Look at this. He must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. Does that sound familiar to something we just read about what was spoken of John the Baptist? And he must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisin. Anything from the vine. This was a part of the Nazarite vow. And what's interesting, and most commentators and most um, scholars would, would agree, that when Gabriel says this to Zechariah, what he's saying is, your son John is going to have a lifetime Nazarite vow. It won't be for 30 days. It won't just be for, for his entire life. If that's the case, then it wasn't just about wine and fermented drink, alcohol, but there were two other, two other stipulations for anyone who would take a Nazarite vow. Verse 5 says this, during the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Little question for you. You ever familiar with the story of Samson? You ever remember Samson having exceptionally long hair? You ever remember that? She tied you to the kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair. You remember that? Well, that was from the song. It was Samson had a lifetime Nazarite vow as well. And the third one, and we won't go into it, the third one is that during the, the time of this vow of separation is that you would have no contact with any kind of corpse or dead body. What that means is, is that when John the Baptist's parents died, probably when he was in his early years or maybe, maybe his teen years, he was not even allowed to be a part of their funeral service. Okay, so he has this Nazarite vow for life. Matthew chapter three says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. (laughs) Here comes this guy out of the desert. He's 30 years old. He's had a lifetime Nazarite vow, which means never in his 30 years has his sideburns, his beard, his mustache, or his hair ever been cut. 30 years. I mean, you want to talk about a man bun. I mean, 30 years of hair. So he comes with all this hair. I mean, just the very sight of him. Uh, if someone asks me why I don't ever do a man bun, 
come on, there's not enough hair here. I, I would have a man crouton. But John the Baptist, he doesn't have a man, but he's got a man loaf. He's got a man bakery. He's got so much hair. He comes and he's got this austere appearance. His very appearance, all this hair screams like, this guy's indifferent. He, he's not like the rest of us. He's unique. And not only that, but it goes beyond. It says, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Okay, okay, so this camel's hair and leather belt, that's not just a fashion statement. A little side note on that one, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, if you want to look it up. That's what Elijah wore, same thing. But it wasn't just this fashion thing or even just trying to be like Elijah the prophet. What it was was John the Baptist saying, I'm forsaking creature comforts. Camel's hair would not be a very comfortable thing to wear. And not only have I not drink drank wine or fermented drinks, but I have purposefully limited my diet to say no to some of the choice foods. And so his diet, he comes eating locusts and wild honey, a bizarre diet, gluten-free albeit, but, but what he's saying is there's a lot of things that I have just chosen to say no to. What you see with John the Baptist is that from birth, there are things he's fasting from. Throughout his life, it's not just food, but even the creature comforts and his diet. So when people were fasting twice a week, it would not be a stretch at all to say John was right in there with them. And as I mentioned, John had disciples. The whole concept of a disciple is that you're an apprentice. You walk along with your rabbi, you become like them, you follow them, you imitate them. Ray Vanderlaan had this thing called in the dust of the rabbi, that you follow them so closely that when they kick up dust, it covers you. So his disciples would have fasted. Did they take Nazarite vows? Maybe, maybe not. Did they wear camel's hair and, and leather belts? Maybe, but they did fast, which takes us back to where we were last week when they said John's disciples came to Jesus and asked, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So his disciples are fasting. He's fasting. And later, Jesus would make this statement about John. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. He's not drinking the Nazarite vow, but he's fasting too. There's a lot of things he doesn't eat, and there's days that he doesn't eat. And they're all calling him weird. They're calling him a demon. But Jesus says, he's the greatest who ever lived. Is he great because he fasts? Does he fast because he's great? I don't know. But what I do know is that he did fast. And what he had is something that is so important, something that we cannot miss, especially as we're pursuing this ancient spiritual discipline of fasting, is that he had humility. He had humility. This is so important because there had been large crowds that were following him. He had disciples. And then Jesus comes along and some of his disciples leave him and follow Jesus. And then some of his crowd leave him and follow Jesus. What happened was you got John the Baptist, his congregation, his crowd, and they all leave. They left the Baptist church to go to Christ the King is basically what happened there. And some of his disciples said, John, don't you even care about this? I mean, people are leaving and you see this humility. This is something I referenced last week where, where John says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, the best man, 
waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now it is, it is now complete. John says, listen, I'm just, I'm just the best man and I'm so happy for Jesus. I'm so happy that he's here. He's the reason that I even came was to prepare the way for him. And you just see this, this humility that he has. And then, then he makes this statement. And this is what, this has all been building up to this one statement. These eight words, like the great eight, here they are. These words, this is the phrase that pays. This is one, if you get, quoting Kip, if you get nothing else out of this sermon, these eight words, John, greatest of all time, forerunner, more than a prophet, said these eight words. He must become greater I must become less. He must become greater. I must become less. Contrast that with Jesus' disciples who are arguing about who is the greatest, who have their mom come to Jesus and say, hey, can my boys be on the right and the left-hand side of your throne? John says, listen, he's got to become greater. I've got to become less. Less of me more of him. That's the essence of it all. Less is more. Less of me, more of him. And this is how John operated all the way through. See it in John chapter one, the gospel of John. It says, I'm not the light of the world. I came as a witness to the light. You see where he sees Jesus, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see the, the time where he says, listen, I baptize with water. He's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Or he would say, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie his, his sandals. I'm I, I, not even worthy. And he declares, this is the son of God. You know, less of me and more of him. And here's the crazy thing. And this is why we need to grasp this. Because this discipline of fasting has this insidious nature that it can so easily and subtly become all about me. You remember what Jesus said, what we looked at last week? And when you fast, you know, don't fast to be seen. It's so easy for fasting to be done for other people to observe. It's so easy for fasting to be filled with pride, with self-righteousness, with comparison, or with, oh, I'm so hungry, or look how much I've given up. And then it becomes all about me. Let's follow John the Baptist, who said, less of me more of him. My friend, um, Sean Vandop, he's a pastor up in Chilliwack. I think it's called Main Street Church in, in Chilliwack. Sean and I have known each other for years. His church is in a, in a season right now of 21 days of, of prayer and fasting. A couple of weeks ago, he posted on his Facebook this phrase, and I, and I love it. It is impossible to have a hunger for God when you are full of yourself. And fasting is emptying ourselves so that we can be filled with God. I don't know if you notice, I got a bucket here. And this bucket's gonna kinda just for a minute represent our lives. And this is what fasting is. Fasting is saying, in my life, there's some stuff filling my life, you know, like food. Or, and it's, I don't know if that's good food, but, or even coffee, you know, it's not necessarily bad stuff, but, but I'm gonna say no to some of these things. You know, or, or maybe it's, I don't know, some, some apps that I use or some, some games that I play all the time. Or, you know, 
maybe it's how much I watch on TV and Netflix and, or even, even my schedule that's so filled up with all of my stuff or my, my commitment to, to technology. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to, for a season, I'm just going to say no to some stuff. But this isn't the ultimate goal, just to empty ourselves. Remember, that's only half the equation. I'm going to say no to some things so that maybe I can fill my life with a little more prayer. I can spend more time in God's word. Maybe it's just taking one verse. Maybe it's just that verse, he must become greater and I must become less. Maybe I'll spend some time with worship. This is a hymnal for those who don't know what a red book like this looks like. Just to worship God. Or maybe spend more time journaling. God, what are you doing? What are you saying to me? How can I surrender to you? Maybe it's putting on those noise-canceling headphones to just be quiet and listen and hear the still, small voice of God. Maybe it's picking up the towel of servanthood and saying, you know what? It's going to be less about me. I'm going to serve others. It's not just emptying out, but it's filling up when Paul says and he prays for the church in Ephesus that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That you take some things out, but put, replace them and to be filled with the things of God. John Wesley, John and Charles Wesley, powerful, powerful men of God, evangelists, songwriters, and such. They had a very um, methodical approach to discipleship, to spiritual maturity. In fact, it was very structured, and the methods are why they, their followers referred to as Methodists, because they had this method. Part of the methods, part of their structure for spiritual discipleship was fasting. And they encouraged all Methodists to fast every Wednesday or Friday. And if those didn't work, days didn't work out, to fast some other days. In fact, John Wesley would not ordain a pastor into the ministry unless they fasted two days a week. So very much a part of their, their, uh, their following and, and their lives. And John said this about fasting. First, let it, fasting, let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eyes singly fixed on him. Let our intention herein be this and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. Less of me, more of him. Emptying out to replace and fill it up with more of him. As I said, fasting has been a part of God's people for centuries all throughout the pages of scripture. And even, even when, when uh, Israel was, was in exile, they fasted. But the prophet Zechariah Ask these words. Ask the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? Or was it about you? Or was it just going through the motions? Or was it just legalism? Less of me, more of him. He must become greater. I must become less. So that's what I want for us. And as we continue on in this for the next two weeks, 
to continually thinking, how do I die to myself and come alive to God? How do I glorify him? All right. Now, let me close with this, this challenge. I mentioned this last week. We're in this 21 days of fasting. This Thursday, this Thursday is January 21st, which happens to be the 21st day of the 21st year of the 21st century. It also happens to be the exact middle day of our 21 days of fasting, 10 days before, 10 days after. It's right in the middle. And on that day, and I know some of you have different plans of what you're fasting or when you're fasting, but I'm asking, I'm inviting, and I, again, I don't want to do the heavy-handed guilt on this, what if, maybe I should do it that way, what if we, what if you joined me on the 21st to fast, whether it be part of the day, all of the day, a meal, a couple meals on the 21st? And what if we were a united church with a united fast for the United States? It's the day after President Biden is inaugurated. You know the condition of our country. And what if God's people who are called by his name would humble themselves in fasting and pray and pray that he'd bring healing to our land? So I'm asking, would you join me this Thursday? And I'll let the Holy Spirit guide you on what? But would you say no to something and focus some time and attention in praying, not only for our country, but for our leaders. In 2 Timothy, we read these words. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority. Whether you agree with them or not, whether you voted for them or not, whether you think they're fit or not, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That we would pray for President Biden. Vice President Harris, pray for Governor Inslee. Pray for our mayors of whatever town you're in. To pray for our country. So, January 21st, 121, this Thursday. It's the 21st day of the 21st year of the 21st century. It's the middle of our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And may that also be a reminder to us that our hope is not in a political party. Doesn't matter which party you, you ascribe to. Our hope is not in a candidate or a leader or a title or, or an authority. Our hope is not even in our country. Our hope is in the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead, who is seated at the right, right hand in the heavenlies, and under whose feet all things exist. Pastor Jeff pointed this out to me. In Ephesians 1:21. It says, Jesus is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. On 121, that we're praying with the confidence of Ephesians 121, on the 21st day of the 21st year of the 21st century, that God would be exalted, that Jesus would be glorified, that our country would be healed, and that we would put our hope in Jesus Christ.